Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's show, we welcome former Premier of Alberta, the Honourable Jason Kenney. His current position is as Senior Advisor at Bennett Jones. He speaks to host Pamela Ritchie about his current position, his time as Premier of Alberta and Canada's longest serving immigration minister, and also his thoughts on government spending and affordable housing. Jason Kenney says this is the first time since post-war history and perhaps modern history where the emerging generation is facing a diminished standard of living compared to their parents. Home equity is out of reach for 90% of young Canadians. He says broadly across Canada, this is a cost of living crisis. He explains his thoughts on attracting investment in business, noting that Canada is attracting less and less foreign investment. And to him, this is a warning signal. He says policy is driving business away. He also touches on Canadian innovation, AI in government, and improving relations with Indigenous peoples. This podcast was recorded on September 13th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Welcome, Minister Kenny. How are you? Great. It's great to be back. I last did uh, this Fidelity broadcast when I was Premier a couple of years ago during the height of the COVID crisis. So it's nice we, to be back during normal times. Normal times. And there's uh, is there a sense of freedom actually not being in politics too? I mean, is that dif- it's different, obviously. Yeah, after 25 years of uh, a punch in 1,900-hour weeks, it's it's nice to be a bit more balanced and to get into the private sector and, and into business. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Fantastic. Well, we're delighted to have a chance to talk to you. We might talk a lot about politics, so I hope you don't mind going right back into it. I'd be shocked if you do. So let's let's dig into actually something to do with political pendulums, because political pendulums at all levels of government, they swing and sometimes they swing slowly for a while and then sometimes fast. What is going on right now on this front? Hmm. Well, I think there's a different dimension. It's not simply a left-right swing. I think we have the emergence of a populism, which is very strong in most Western democracies, it manifests in different ways. And there's, of course, populisms of both the left and the right. But what they hold in common is a deep distrust of institutions, generally government in particular. And I think a lot of that was amplified during COVID because, you know, you had the polarization, the pro-lockdown crowd, the anti-restriction uh, uh, group. And um, uh, people who just, you know, their their innate skepticism about government became, a, in many cases, a deep distrust. So that's because I think it's harder to govern now as a result. It's harder to find consensus. And we see that in all sorts of ways. I mean, just look at what's happened in American politics as an example, uh, the whole Trump phenomenon. Um, this is not your, 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 your grandfather's Republican Party anymore. Uh, this is a, they, they basically turned, that populist movement has turned that party on its head. 
And we see that uh, that kind of phenomenon in a lot of Western democracies. It's fascinating because the element of during COVID governments, uh, many will argue, I mean, I don't know where everyone comes down on this, but, you know, they sort of had to spend on some level. Some of them probably spent way too much. But in any case, there's also sort of this contracting of massive government spending and also central bank stimulus to maybe a different way of doing things. I mean, there's sort of this ski jump that that I, I guess we're coming down the other side of. And I, I would say that uh, this is what's fueling some of the, the deep frustration about conventional politics, and that is we are now entering a time when apparently for the first time in uh, certainly post-war history, uh, and perhaps one could say uh, sort of modern history, uh, the emerging generation can is looking at a diminished standard of living compared to their parents. Uh, that is a particularly acute in Canada with the housing crisis. I mean, broadly, there's the cost of living crisis. Uh, many uh, middle-income and working families, uh, not to mention the work, uh, people on fixed incomes and the working poor, are really struggling to make ends meet now. And, and uh, housing costs have become so stratospheric in Canada that home equity is now basically out of the reach of uh, of 90% of young Canadians. So uh, I, I'm concerned, again, it, it, and, and some of that is the consequence of the COVID overspend, uh, and I would say irresponsible monetary policy that has now forced a, an increase that created the inflation crisis and, the, and its response, uh, the increase in interest rates. Will the increase in interest rates change the dynamic of the housing market so that it becomes more affordable? Or is policy from the government necessary? Like, well, which can... Well, uh, look, on the one side, look, so that the, the housing crisis is a question, of course, of both supply and demand. Yeah. On the demand side, the higher rates uh, are abating demand a bit. But when you're adding effectively 1.5 million newcomers into the country every year through both permanent and temporary residents, uh, that easily overwhelms any uh, abatement of housing uh, supply from or housing demand, excuse me, from higher rates. What it does do is it, it forces there, there's a tsunami of, re, of mortgage refinancing coming up over the next two years. I'm sure you've talked about this before, um, where uh, people who locked in uh, at sort of, you know, two and a half, three point rates are going to be paying at least twice that and be paying six, seven percent. And a lot of them are going to ha- are going to be underwater uh, when they look at their at their new mortgage uh, financing. What they're going to be paying in interest. People are now extending mortgage terms out to ninety years. This is like I indentured servitude. Wild, yes. So we are we are on like we have a housing crisis now, but I fear it's about to get a lot worse. And um, this, I I believe, is and will become increasingly. Uh, the central issue in Canadian politics. Interesting. And would you say, as as immigration minister for uh, longest serving immigration minister in history, what works? Because there's there's the number of people coming in, and you know many will argue that our demographics you know warrant a lot of people coming into the country. But the but the issue, of course, is is the integration and where people will live on the housing front, yeah. but also other things. As immigration yeah. minister, how did you do this well? What worked? What didn't well, work? First of all, I, like most Canadians, I support immigration. I think that you know we need and, and benefit from the skills uh, of newcomers, and we do have a, a shrinking uh, birth rate and aging population. All of those things we know. Uh, 
However, I always said when I was immigration minister that there are practical limits to our ability to welcome people. I maintained what was up until then, we're talking 2008 to 13, the highest levels of absolute levels of immigration in Canadian history. I was running on average about 235,000 a year. Now, the current government has doubled that target for permanent residents, but what they're really not being transparent about is the huge increase in what we call temporary residents, like temporary foreign workers and foreign students, all of whom come here with that, quotes, temporary visa, with the expectation that it will turn into a permanent visa. So you've got this huge uh, a group of a cohort of people, young people in particular, desperate to translate their student or worker visa into permanent residency and um, coming into, into a context where we don't have housing for them. You know this, in the GTA, the average rent is now $2,300 a month, average detached house, uh, not in the 416, but in the broader GTA, and in the greater Vancouver region is now about $1.2, $1.3 million. So zero chance of home ownership and a real struggle even getting rental of housing. But just think about healthcare. We have some of the longest wait lists for both treatment and diagnostic services of any uh, health system in the developed world. Uh, and we're adding more and more people into that queue. And then finally, there's two other points, which is, um, I, you know, there is something like an optimal, le optimal level of immigration, but if it becomes overwhelming, and particularly if you're introducing more and more people into the um, sort of bottom end of the labor market, competing for entry-level jobs, you end up effectively bidding down the price of labor, or you end up retarding the normal market mechanism, the price mechanism of, in of increasing labor, which makes, makes the cost of living more affordable. So here, what, what does that all mean? We are getting actually poorer as a country. I'm not saying this is because of immigration, but if, if we maintain very high levels, we will continue to see a de decrease in our per capita gross domestic product. According to a recent study, Canada's per capita GDP is now on par with Alabama, the, the poorest of the 50 United States. This is not a good picture. I think we need to take a step back and say we are pro-immigration. We need to select immigrants with the right kinds of human capital for the future of our economy. But we need this, but we need to do it in a way that is practical and and uh, and that is not a substitute for business investment in productivity uh, and technology. That's interesting. Does the point system still do it? Yeah, yeah the point system was a good feature uh, going back to 50 years in the Canadian immigration system. But increasingly, that's just, uh, I, I mean, I, I reformed that. I reformed every aspect of the system. Um, and, and the primary economic immigrants selected through the point system generally do quite well. We still have problems and barriers to the to, to credential recognition so people can work at their skill level. But look, only about 20% of our immigrants are primary economic immigrants selected based on their human capital through the point system because the rest are their dependents or subsequently sponsored family members or uh, temporary form workers and others converted into permanent residency, refugees, et cetera. So I would argue that, that the percentage of, of people selected based on their economic skills is, is too small. Interesting, that's fascinating. So, I mean, you just mentioned sort of a comparison to the poorest state in the United States. Let, let's broaden it out to how Canada looks to the world for, for foreign direct investors, for you know any businesses that might want to set up here. 
what what is the appeal and and maybe if you could break it out a little bit provincially from your perspective as your premier of Alberta, you must see the provinces that do a better or worse job of attracting businesses. Yeah, well, I can tell you as premier of Alberta, I was absolutely obsessed with uh, attracting inbound investment into Alberta because we had seen a huge flight of capital from this province. Uh, we were the second, after Ontario, Alberta had the largest GDP, the largest economy in Canada until 2015. There was a commodity price downturn. And then that, plus a lot of anti-resource government policies, uh, caused a huge flight of capital. So I'm, I'm proud to say that we turned that around. We cut corporate taxes by a third. We cut regulations by a third. Uh, we had targeted uh, incentives in, in particular in industries to diversify like um, film and, and television productions. And we, I think, helped to fight for renewed confidence in the energy sector here. So uh, Alberta's been a happy, um, I think, counterexample of, of an economy that's been doing very well in the past couple of years. But overall, as you know, Canada has been attracting less and less foreign investment. Uh, as our uh, productivity declines, and this in the long term, should be a warning signal. I think for too long, and I'm sorry to be a little partisan about this, but I think for too long we've had a government in Ottawa who, it, which is not seriously focused on these fundamental economic challenges like productivity and like investment. To the contrary, uh, a lot of policies that have been driving investment away. So, can I can I just ask on the on the investment dollars from you know other places around the world? At one stage, and this was certainly true during during the commodity super cycle, um, a lot of the attraction was from Chinese firms, and and be them state backed or otherwise, it was it was money coming in from China. Um, where else? Because that's tricky now. I mean, there's no question that is a tricky place to look for foreign currency to come into this country. Where else? Where, where We must target. Where, where do you target? To, uh, one general point that I'm more a regional one, uh, there is no shortage of capital in the, the global economy. You've got these right. monster funds, private equity funds, uh, hedge funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, etc. So the wealth is there. Uh, but in particular, I would say we should be looking to uh, Japan as a kind of substitute for Chinese investment, which I think is 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 not a safe bet for all sorts of obvious reasons. I think that it, the, the world is right. When I say the world, I mean I think that the, the democratic economies are right uh, to be have become increasingly skeptical about um, uh, investment in China and in Chinese investment uh, for all sorts of reasons, obvious reasons. You see the huge shift of the financial services sector in Asia, from Hong Kong to Singapore, for example, of manufacturing from the PRC to Vietnam and India. I think those trends will continue, but there are huge pools of capital in places like Korea and Japan, and increasingly India with its explosive growth, both demographic and economic. Absolutely. So uh, I think that's where we should be focusing. Uh, I remember meeting um, with Henry Kravitz, uh, the head of KKR, uh, I think the, the second or third largest uh, PE firm in, in uh, the United States. Um, I met, I remember going down to get his advice in 2019. How could I and Alberta attract investment? He said, go to Korea and Japan. And that's partly because they're looking to maximize returns. I'll be blunt. They're less sentimental about the kind of ESG, um, uh, metrics that a lot of European and some North American funds are focused on. And so I think that bodes well for the resource sector in Canada, which is and will continue to be, uh, the core part of our economy. 
Indigenous communities throughout Alberta, other parts of the country as well, it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity for them to essentially have a business that, um, that they can share in. Tell us a little bit about what yeah. you've done on that front to make sure that those relations are fair, equal, and money-making. Well, there's some great news uh, in Canada that we don't celebrate enough. And that is, in the past few years, we have seen, you know, we if you went look back five to ten years ago, the, the biggest challenge facing our resource industries was um, opposition to projects, infrastructure, mines, etc., uh, from Indigenous communities. But more and more, both business and government have realized that we have to find a way forward to be partners in prosperity with with First Nations, with Indigenous communities, and we have to break down the barriers to their full economic and financial participation. It, and the biggest barrier is access to capital. Because of the, because of the um, outdated and ridiculous Indian Act, uh, people on, on reserve can't actually own fee simple property. Very hard for First Nations themselves, collective as, as governments, uh, to have, they have, many of them have very small balance sheets. So they, they, they didn't have the financial depth to actually be investors. We've helped to change that. I created something called the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which is a financial backstop uh, that essentially writes loan guarantees for qualified First Nations investment in major projects so that they can get access to commercial rates of credit. And they've, they've now written nearly a billion dollars of deals, the biggest being the Enbridge sale of 10% of 23 pipelines, sorry, of uh, seven pipelines to 23 First Nations last year. And this is creating a permanent revenue stream uh, for First Nations, helping to move their people from poverty to prosperity. There are deals like this happening all across, certainly Western Canada, I think increasingly Northern Ontario, where um, uh, resource companies, pipeline companies, infrastructure companies, and others know that they have to find First Nations partners for major projects. And by the way, First Nations typically live in more remote areas of Northern Canada, the regions, which is where we get most of our resources from. So I think this is a great practical way that we can do reconciliation, not just talking about all the kind of uh, symbolic issues, but real practical economic participation through ownership and co-ownership in major resource projects. It's happening and the banks are, are, are getting getting on board. It's very exciting to see the momentum. Business and trade is a great peacemaker. It is. So let's, let's move into banks. This question is about banks. So banks are extending amortization periods to help consumers keep their homes. And you, you touched on this earlier. This is a temporary solution. What are some of the longer term policies we might consider to fix the housing story? And maybe we'll take it just particularly from that side of it. Sure. So uh, supply and demand, first of all, on the demand side, as I, as I suggested earlier, I do think we need um, on the immigration side. We need to get realistic. And there's no point in, in welcoming people to Canada if they can't afford to live here. Uh, and so I do think there needs to be uh, a, at least for a period of time, a moderation in immigration levels until we get a handle on this housing crisis. OK, this 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 huge bubble. But do you think that's, that's a way that the bank, I mean, the banks themselves will have to pull their own levers as well to. Well, this is another thing. That almost all of the, the federal government uh, housing policies that have been introduced across the crisis actually stimulate demand. They, you know, things like special tax treatment for, for uh, first time buyers, et cetera. Uh, look, if, if it costs one and a half million dollars to buy a detached suburban home, 
Uh, it doesn't matter what incentives you create. If you're, and by the way, you're just fueling more and more demand into a crazy market. So I think we need to uh, uh, slow down on some of the demand side incentives, um, have a more realistic immigration target on the demand side. On supply side, uh, you know, look, we have municipalities that continue to be driven by nimbyism. We, we, we built fewer homes in Canada last year than we did in 1972 when we had half the population. This is nuts. And this is in large part because of zoning complexity. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, I think Mr. Polyev is right in saying that any federal and I would say provincial infrastructure, uh, funds for municipalities must be tied to measurable progress on new builds. The federal government itself and provincial governments and cities, they own huge amounts of land that are dormant that could be quickly turned over to, um, uh, to rezone for development. A lot of our urban areas still have um, mid-density in the urban core areas. Those, those, those zoning zones could be changed to uh, higher density. I think we could create uh, some strong incentives for more rental housing. For example, we could replicate what they have in the United States, which is a capital gains uh, abatement for reinvesting in a similar project. So you could, there's a lot, there's billions of dollars of capital locked into, for example, um, rental housing where the owner doesn't want to realize their gains because they'll get whacked on capital gains. So give them a year to sell that building, reinvest it in more modern housing stock with a capital gains abatement. So there, I think there's a whole suite of policies. There's no one silver bullet, but we've got to take this seriously. Do you think crown lands also, or is this more a municipal provincial yeah. story? So that's what I meant by all orders of government owning a lot of land that's kind of dormant. Yeah. Um, and there are, um, uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of acres of government owned land that's that's just sitting there uh and and, and it, it, it we need and all you know another thing of course is with the change in the office realty market um with a lot of of long term and vacancies in in our um in many older office buildings many of them not all of them but about probably about 30% of them can be economically converted into uh, into high density housing so there's a long list of things that can be done, but I'll be blunt. If we're continuing to add a, a million and a half people into the country every year, when we're only building 200,000 houses, we're going to be uh, drowning instead of making progress um, on housing affordability. And you're getting a million and a half from those that are accepted as immigrants, uh, as well as, for instance, foreign students and so on. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's temp permanent plus temporary residents. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's uh, another the, question. And, and on that. Last month, the Canadian economy created uh, 40,000 new jobs, uh, but welcomed 100,000 newcomers. God bless those newcomers. I wish them every success, and I thank them for choosing Canada. But I think it's a shame if we've invited them here and we can't get, offer them affordable housing or accessible health care. Fair enough. Okay. Um, federal Conservatives are polling well. They usually have a more friendly tax policy for businesses and consumers. What, what are your expectations from the tax side of things. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So if they win, I think is the implication here. Well, yeah. it, as you know, the federal conservative party just held their, their convention, but they're it's it's two good. Years, Yeah. But that's two years from the next election. So they haven't published a, a full platform yet, but um, my former intern and former staffer, Pierre Polyev was has been clear that, that, that tax relief will be part of this. And I think he specifically said income tax relief in his speech uh, on Saturday night. Um, they, they're obviously committed to repealing the 
retail carbon tax, which is, and the governor of the Bank of Canada confirmed this again last week, which is a factor in driving up inflation in Canada. So I think those that, that's where they'll focus, which is probably the the um, the retail carbon tax uh, and the letting if provinces want, want to do that themselves, the sure a poly of government will allow them to. But the focus I think will be on middle uh, on income tax rates and reducing the um, uh, the, the penalty for people to work, save, and invest in the marginal income tax rates. Uh, I think that will probably be their focus. My focus as premier was more on the corporate and business side because I was desperate to get investment to kickstart a dormant economy. But I think he's much more focused, and rightfully so, on the cost of living of middle-income families. What, what kind of grade would you give Canada broadly on um, on innovation? I mean, we talk about AI a lot now, and that we get the sort of fathers of AI um, started in Toronto, and um, and we have a thriving innovative sector in many areas. It, it's yeah. more a relative question to the U.S. We know, but I'm wondering if sort of similar size countries, what kind well, of grade would you give Canada? Good, there's a lot of good stories, a lot of good startups, and and uh, a lot to celebrate. A lot of good stuff coming yeah, happening in our universities at the University of Alberta. We have one of the world's top-rated uh, artificial intelligence labs, for example. But uh, when you look at the hard data. What concerns me is that the Canadian businesses are uh, invest less in uh, R&D, which is innovation, than virtually any country in the OECD amongst the 32 most developed economies in the world. So we are in the bottom quartile of the OECD when it comes to business investment uh, in R&D. And there's no shortage of government incentives as you know, we also have, for reasons I've never fully understood, we've always been challenged to develop a venture capital ecosystem nearly as strong as what exists in the United States. I think part of that is cultural. Um, part of it may have to do with, with, with tax rates here as well. But uh, I think we need to unlock that, that, that venture capital that is the jet fuel for startups and innovation, but also the, the business community in Canada uh, needs to up its game when it comes to investing in R&D. Do you think that AI can help with bureaucracy to the extent that you've looked into it? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of reports being yeah. written up right now, but um, what do you think on that front? Yeah, you know, um, when you think about all the services that government provides and how clunky it is online and, you, you know, compare your experience doing your online banking to dealing with a government agency online. Like people still have to go into government offices or it, it's a... It's, it's almost as though the public sector is a decade behind the private sector when it comes to client interface uh, with, with online services. So I think that, that, and by the way, governments also own mountains of data, which could be anonymized and very useful in, in um, developing AI-fueled uh, services. For, for and, and some governments are doing this. Estonia, a little country, but Poland. Uh, even Ukraine before the war was a leader. Of, they were ahead of Canada when it comes to um, applying IT and, and particularly artificial intelligence into the, the uh, public-facing aspects of government. So I think so much more could be okay, healthcare, for example. We still do right. not have uh, we still don't have even proper electronic platforms 
uh, for sharing health data. We've stopped the faxing though, right? I mean, the faxing is over now, right? I'm not sure about that. I think my, my doctor still faxes prescriptions to the pharmacist. It's crazy. No. Um, what would you like to leave with Canadians as, as sort of a message from you? Many, many Canadians look up to you as, you know, the leadership of the Conservative Party in this country. What do you want to leave Canadians with, investors particularly? Uh, just, you know, final thought. Well, Canada has a lot of challenges. We, we touched on them. Um, but this is still a country with limitless promise. There's a reason why all those newcomers want to come here. It's because of opportunity. And I would argue opportunity based on our historically grounded values and institutions. I, one thing that concerns me is this kind of the great awakening. I just read a story today about the Mississauga schools um, removing any book published prior to 2008 because they said that because these books might have somehow be insensitive. You know, I, 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 so that wokeness concerns me because I think that there is um we're not a perfect country. We have we have sadness in our history, but we've built a country that is the envy of the world. Uh, let's keep it that way uh, with smart pro-growth policies that unleash the the entrepreneurial culture of Canadians, particularly of new Canadians. One of the reasons I love newcomers so much is they are twice as likely as people born in Canada to start a new business. So we have an we we have under under the you know this deep current of an entrepreneurial culture. We need government policy to unleash that, uh, and uh, we need to embrace our traditional resource industries as a source of great wealth. Uh, deal with practical concerns like housing. If we can get some of those things right, uh, the sky will continue to be the limit for Canada. Jason Kenny, it's been such a pleasure that you shared your time with us. We really appreciate it, and wish you very well. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks very much, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.